0: Hey everybody, Liam here. Just a quick announcement before we get into the story. This episode that you're about to hear is the first in a mini series called Long Lost Oakland. Long Lost Oakland is a project that I've been working on for the past few months, and the big centerpiece of it will be a beautiful illustrated map of Oakland featuring all kinds of interesting things that used to be here, but aren't anymore. So buildings, various kinds of infrastructure, even plants and animals. Pretty soon, I'll be announcing a Kickstarter to pay for the printing of the map because I have no idea how many people will want this sort of thing. So that way, everyone who wants one will be able to get one. And once the map is public, I'll be doing some events where I'll talk about why I felt like it was important to make the map at this particular point in time and show a bunch of images that inspired the map and hopefully have some discussions with people like you about how Oakland's history connects to what we're currently living through now. As for the Long Lost Oakland podcast miniseries, these episodes will tell some of the stories behind the images on the map. And today, we're kicking it all off. I'll be sharing some previews from the map of the illustrations related to today's episode. So follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to see those, you can find all those social media links at eastbayyesterday.com. And of course, that's also how you can find out about the long lost Oakland Kickstarter as soon as it launches. Okay, thanks for listening. On to the episode. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. (laughs) Let's Let's begin. There are a lot of places in California that are named for things that were here, but aren't anymore. Where I'm standing right now is a perfect example. Grizzly Peak. It's one of the highest points in the East Bay. A few hundred years ago you might have been able to look around and see dozens, maybe even hundreds of grizzly bears from up here. Now the grizzly is on California's state flag and you'll see bears all over Berkeley's campus which is just downhill from here on the other side of Strawberry Canyon but those are just images of course. You'd have to go pretty far like Yellowstone or Montana to see the real thing. But speaking of Strawberry Canyon, that's the first place in the East Bay where Europeans reportedly killed a grizzly. Spanish soldiers shot one to death, right down there by the creek, back in 1772, according to a priest who was there. Less than 100 years later, in the 1860s, what was probably the last East Bay grizzly was gunned down in a San Leandro orchard. Sometimes when I'm up in these hills, I try to imagine what the East Bay used to look like. And that's not as easy as it sounds, Because everything, plants, animals, even birds, they're so different now. Like, can you even picture a condor with a 10-foot wingspan flying above Tilden and then swooping down to pick an elk carcass, sending a bunch of eagles scattering? Anyway, I do know one thing. Looking south from here, along the ridge, you'd be able to see some of the biggest trees that ever existed in the history of the planet. I'm talking about redwood trees that were thousands of years old and as tall as the tribune tower those old growth redwoods they're gone now too they were wiped out at almost the exact same time as the grizzlies when you think about it it's kind of crazy how quickly everything changed these things grizzlies and redwoods both so huge and powerful such important parts of this landscape for millennia boom practically gone in the blink of an eye i honestly couldn't really wrap my head around how it all happened so fast but i found a few people who helped me understand and that's what this episode is about it's about grizzlies and old growth redwoods and what happened to them and maybe that sounds a little depressing but don't worry because you know history moves in cycles the Redwoods are already coming back. Maybe the Grizzlies will someday, too. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned.
1: Oh, I just wish I had a time machine sometimes so I could go back and see, you know, what the East Bay was with these large Grizzlies roaming around and... Um, elk and pronghorn condors flying overhead, and I, yeah, I used to just daydream about it a lot.
0: That's the voice of Laura Cunningham, an East Bay native and one of my favorite artists. Looking at Laura's paintings is probably the next best thing to actually having a time machine. When she was a kid growing up in Kensington, a tiny little town in the hills just north of Berkeley, she tore up her parents' yard so she could replant it with native grasses. She even foraged the seeds. Ever since then, she's been obsessed with thinking about what California looked like before colonization. She studied paleontology and biology at UC Berkeley and worked all kinds of field study jobs for places like California's Department of Fish and Wildlife. And now she uses all the knowledge she's gained over the decades to paint these incredible scenes of, you know what, I'll I'll just let her describe one of my favorites.
1: I was picturing hiking up along the Bay Shore, and this would specifically be up around El Cerrito, Albany, Richmond, kind of near the Golden Gate Fields racetrack, and there's just this beautiful area of mudflats. And I used to go there a lot in the 80s and look at all the shorebirds. So then I read an account of a beached whale in the 1860s, I think it was in Monterey Bay, and the observer saw groups of grizzlies feeding on this whale and actually digging a hole with their claws into the whale's side and entering the innards of the whale and feeding on it from the inside out. I painted that on our East Bay Shores. There's a giant gray whale that's beached and dead and there's half a dozen or a dozen different colored grizzlies that have collected to the area. And they're feasting on this. They'll feast on this for weeks. And one of the grizzlies has scratched and bitten its way into the whale's side and is going inside the whale to feed on the organs. And there's a bald eagle here and there. Gulls are enjoying the scraps. So, yeah, this might have been an amazing scene that would happen once in a while in the Oakland shores.
0: What's, What's this guy doing right here?
1: There's a, a big gray grizzly that uh, just has a, a piece of whale flesh or whale blubber, and he's pawing at it and beginning to eat it, and the gulls are just circling around trying to get some scraps. So they've just opened up this newly beached whale, and they're beginning to drag out pieces of flesh and blubber.
0: And it looks like the, the e- even the eagle is keeping a respectful distance. You know, No one wants to get in the way of the uh, bears. They were kind of the top of the... Top of the pecking order, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's what I learned about in Yellowstone. Even our giant eagles, the bald eagle, had to wait. uh, Wait its turn to get a scrap.
0: One swat from those big claws and uh, you wouldn't be doing too, too well. You'd be gone. Laura spent weeks in Yellowstone studying wild grizzlies and sketching them in their natural habitat. She's really dedicated to making sure her big paintings are as realistic as possible. When she wanted to recreate what the area around El Cerrito Plaza looked like centuries ago, she started by taking a picture and then working backwards from there.
1: So what I would do is I took the photograph and then I did research to try to paint exactly how the same scene looked say 500 years ago. So I'd walk around the El Cerrito Plaza area and look for remnants of, were there oaks here or maybe there's some purple needle grass, native bunch grasses in this lot right there, and there were. You could actually find native plants around this neighborhood. So then I would do research about what the area looks like in the past. Of course, grizzlies were reported in in historical accounts for this area. So the painting I did to match the photograph is basically a grassland with a single coast live oak looking out westward towards the bay, and there are California grizzlies dining on the fallen acorns of the oak.
0: If you want to see this image, it's in Laura's book, State of Change, Forgotten Landscapes of California. This book doesn't just show you what the East Bay used to look like, it helps you imagine what it must have been like to live here back then too. I was curious if there was anything Laura learned from watching the bears in Yellowstone that surprised her.
1: I guess that um, they are just melding in their landscape. They can appear and disappear amongst hills and trees, and they just seemed like they covered huge amounts of ground. And it was, and it was also a little scary, too. Maybe I didn't realize how the, that hiking in Tilden Park, you know, it just you don't think of it as scary at all, but with large thousand pound grizzlies roaming around, it must have been a different world. Because they can just be hiding behind a coyote brush and then you imagine walking by and there they are, pretty quiet.
0: Of course, the native tribes that are now broadly referred to as Ohlone actually did live side by side with the grizzlies. Some reports say that bear claws were sacred objects used by shaman and ceremonies, but people still argue about this type of thing. It's hard to be certain about the relationship between the Ohlone and the bears because so much history was lost during the genocide of California's native peoples. But one thing's certain, Ohlone people and grizzlies coexisted for thousands of years.
1: Native Americans, from the accounts I've read, had a healthy respect, obviously, for bears. And I think there are some instances where grizzlies might have taken a life here and there. But there was an amazing lack of friction between the villages and Native people here. And I haven't seen any evidence of, like, resource competition. I mean, that's the amazing thing about California in the past. It was just sheer abundance. So I I never saw an account that said, oh, the Indians were having a hard time collecting acorns because they're all eaten by grizzlies. I never read anything or talked to any elders who remembered that, so it seems like there was plenty to go around.
0: This is pretty much what Karina Gould told me when I interviewed her for the episode about shell mounds, which are Ohlone sacred sites. Karina's a descendant of the Ohlone, specifically the confederated villages of LaShawn. She said that her ancestors gave the bears plenty of space, and the bears usually returned the favor, although Spanish colonizers did write about seeing some indigenous people with nasty bear scars. Anyway, besides the danger of messing with bears, maybe the Ohlone also respected the fact that grizzlies had already been living in the Bay Area well before humans arrived on the scene.
1: I think the fossil evidence is that the Ursus arctos, that's the scientific name, that line of bears is basically a Eurasian line. And they came over the land bridge, Bering land bridge in the Ice Age. Actually, I think pretty recently compared to some, like the black bear, which seemed to have a longer lineage in North America. So I think grizzlies are basically a Eurasian immigrant. And when they came, they just seemed to thrive. Being a grizzly in the East Bay must have been just a paradise, it must have been heaven. It was so easy compared to Yellowstone, which has harsh winters and pretty arid summers. But in the East Bay, and in, in fact most of coastal California, we had mild weather. Apparently, some of the bigger male grizzlies never hibernated. They just didn't need to. There was plenty of food. So that may account why they got so large.
0: Depending on where they live, the average weight of an adult male grizzly currently ranges from about 400 to 800 pounds. California used to have grizzlies that were well over 1,000, maybe even 2,000 pounds. Some of the biggest might have stood around 9 feet tall. Besides all the salmon and trout and acorns, pretty much everything was on the menu.
1: Grizzlies ate just about anything, so they had these really long claws that were longer than our fingers that they used to dig up wild onion bulbs and roots and gophers. They'd dig up gophers and ground squirrels, and then they would turn over logs and stones to get beetle grubs. So, But they were also capable of running down a, a bull elk, a full-grown elk, and eating it, You know, being a carnivorous predator.
0: Everything changed when the Europeans arrived. At first, it wasn't that bad. When most of the East Bay was owned by the Peraltas, the bears actually benefited from all the waste left behind by the family's ranches. The Peraltas were raising cattle to sell the leather hides and tallow, which was made from rendered fat. When they'd slaughter the cattle, they'd leave the meat and innards out in the fields. It was basically an all-you-can-eat buffet for the bears. Unfortunately, the men who were working in this growing cattle industry soon turned to the bears as a source of entertainment.
1: The gauchos, the horsemen, would go and literally three or four of them would lasso a grizzly, and so horses would be pulling at it from different angles so they could sort of control it and they'd drag this poor beast into the corral and then get one of their magnificent fighting bulls and have a, let him go and have a fight.
0: Sometimes tourists would even take steamships across the bay from San Francisco to see these bear versus bull fights go down in Oakland. Eventually, California outlawed the quote-unquote sport in 1854. Oh, and in case you were wondering, the bears were so much more brutal than the bulls that the gauchos usually had to handicap the grizzlies to make it a little more even.
1: I've read they tied a, a hind foot to a stake in the ground, and it, it seemed pretty unfair, but I guess the grizzlies are so powerful, even a bull might just be thrown to the ground by one of these gigantic bears. But
0: it wasn't the Rancho Thunderdome that killed off grizzlies in California. It was the Gold Rush.
1: Yeah, I guess in the the Gold Rush, 1840s and 50s, it, it seemed like meat of any kind was a needed commodity for the miners. So they had market hunters that actually would go all over the Central Valley and killing elk, pronghorn deer. I mean, it actually reduced the population of a lot of game animals in California. Grizzlies were part of the, the meat search to feed this, the gold rush, this influx of people.
0: That's right. So-called jerky hunters were prowling up and down the state, killing and jerkifying everything with four legs. But besides getting knocked down from the top of the food chain, the main problem for grizzlies was that California's new wave of settlers just really didn't want to live with them.
1: You know, you can imagine the Bay Area back in time with grassy flats and then oak woodlands here and there, and people were planting farms and having honey. And I've read accounts where the bears would come out of the hills and raid the hives that were used for farming and and getting honey, or they'd come and raid a garden, you know, for the vegetables. And even worse to people moving here were that they would go kill calves and cattle and sheep, and they were just um, too predatory on farm animals, raiding crops, and, you know, very dangerous for people to, apparently for our culture, we just haven't uh, designed a way to coexist with big predators, so that was, I think, something brought from Europe, that we cannot coexist, although other cultures can. So I think it was just shoot at sight, trap, hire trappers, market hunters to trap Uh, the hills and I think it was unfortunately pretty efficient.
0: It was pretty hard to take down grizzlies with the primitive guns they had back then. You could shoot a grizzly in the head and it would still come charging. So a lot of the extermination was done with poisons or other gruesome methods.
1: Yeah, really like horrific giant metal bear traps were used in the past. They had to use some pretty heavy duty things to get these. But they, that, and that's the sad thing, is they did. They, they did successfully shoot and, and trap all the bears out of the state.
0: Before the gold rush, there were thousands of grizzlies in California. They were all gone from the East Bay within about 15 years and completely wiped out across the entire state by the 1920s. A few years ago, an environmental group called the Center for Biological Diversity announced a proposal to bring grizzly bears back to California. The logo of the campaign was pretty brilliant. It was the California state flag without the grizzly bear on it, because they said a blank flag is more realistic. The proposal didn't gain any traction with politicians, but it got a lot of media attention. And although some people were into the idea, a lot of people really, really weren't. Hi, uh, I just got back from a hike in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, this is the, an idea of putting grizzlies in national parks is the worst idea I have ever heard of. Uh, it's dangerous enough to be out there having grizzlies in national parks. What you're going to create is one extinct species and that's the hiker. That clip was a caller to KQED's public affairs show forum. Anyway, Even Laura admits that trying to bring grizzlies back would be challenging.
1: I have two lines of thought about this, and my idealistic thought is, yes, yes. God, I'd love to have just reintroduce wolves and grizzlies and expand the elk, you know, instead of cattle. But then my other line of thought is kind of more down-to-earth and practical, and I just don't think it can happen with our The culture we have that defines success by progress and development. I can't see reintroducing grizzlies, say, into a wilderness area in the Sierra Nevada, and them not leaving. They'd want to go to areas that have richer resources, like the Sacramento River or all those juicy farmlands. So I think you couldn't contain grizzlies in a mountainous, distant wilderness area. They they would roam far and want to come to, say, the Bay Area, where all the the food resources used to be or are. So I, I think it's unfortunately impractical in California.
0: It may be impractical, but other animals like coyotes and otters have made a big comeback here. Wild wolves have even been spotted in Northern California a few times recently after being gone for decades. So who knows? If there's one thing we should understand about nature, it's that humans are not as in control as we'd like to think we are. But for the time being, the only place around here that you're likely to stumble on a bear is up in the Laurel District, where there are some really cool murals of grizzlies along MacArthur. I'll post photos of those on East Bay Yesterday social media. Oh, and Laura's next book might go back even further and show what the Bay Area looked like during the last ice age. That book would feature a bear that was even scarier than the grizzly.
1: This giant short-faced bear was a predator. It was like a meat eater. It was carnivorous and it was gigantic. It was the largest North American land mammal predator ever.
0: Picture a bear that stood 12 feet tall, weighed a literal ton, and could run almost 40 miles an hour.
1: It had long cursorial limbs, meaning it could run like a horse. And since it was gigantic, it could probably just plow down a baby mammoth or a bison. And so a phenomenal Ice Age beast. I mean, we're almost maybe glad they're not around anymore. (laughs)
0: Okay, so the grizzly bear is gonna be one of the animals on the long lost Oakland map. Coming up next, a story about one of the plants that will be on it. A few centuries ago, the Oakland Hills weren't covered with trees like they are now. They were mostly pretty grassy. The exception was groves of old growth redwoods. Some of these trees were probably over 350 feet tall. Just to put that in context, the Tribune Tower is only 305 feet tall. And there were two of Oakland's old redwoods that rose higher than all the rest. These trees are now known as the Blossom Rock Navigation Trees. Here's Amelia Sue Marshall, a longtime Oaklander, who just wrote a book called East Bay Hills, A Brief History.
2: What we call the Navigation Redwoods were described by a sea captain named Frederick Beechey. He was a Brit and he came on the ship HMS Blossom to the San Francisco Bay in two subsequent Novembers of 1825 and 1826.
0: Frederick Beachy came here to map the bay. And one of his main goals was to create something called a hazard line, which is a line on a chart that captains can use to avoid hazards. In this case, the deadly obstacle he wanted to help people avoid was Blossom Rock.
2: Blossom Rock was a small island that is on the same undersea ridge as Alcatraz and a number of other Rocks that have been subsequently blown up to prevent maritime uh, collisions. So when Beachy wrote his sailing instructions, he described how you could line the hazard line up from the northernmost point of Yerba Buena Island which is now the site of Treasure Island, you would line up that point with the two tallest redwoods that could be seen on the ridge of the hills above the village of San Antonio, now Oakland. And he said that those two trees were too large and too separated from the rest of the redwood trees on the ridge to be overlooked. It was just a really obvious thing.
0: Blossom Rock was off the coast of San Francisco, pretty close to where Fisherman's Wharf is now. So the fact that these trees were easily visible from that far away is pretty impressive. But unfortunately for sea captains and future generations of Oaklanders, the navigation trees were chopped down sometime in the 1850s.
2: So after the trees were felled, and the mariners had to use other means of avoiding blossom rock.
0: Until it was blown up, with over 20 tons of explosives, that
2: is. Years went by, decades went by, and the naturalists in the East Bay Regional Park District and elsewhere said, where did those navigation trees stand?
0: Aha! A mystery. Proceed.
2: A forester for the East Bay Regional Park District named John Nichols undertook a very careful analysis using his knowledge of forestry, forest soils, tree regeneration rates, and also a geometric analysis. And based on uh, the data that he was able to collect, he placed the site of the Navigation Redwoods at the Madrone Picnic Area in Redwood Regional Park.
0: There's a plaque there now commemorating the Navigation Trees, and something else interesting.
2: You'll notice along the crest of Redwood Peak, viewed from the south, that there are three crowns that stand way up, much taller than their neighbors, and they are placed in such a position that they definitely stick up over the hill, over the surrounding trees, and Nichols conjectures that those could be the successors, the genetically identical trees um, of the navigation progenitors.
0: And that's uh, that's kind of a cool thought, you know, that the original navigation redwoods have been chopped down, you know, over 150 years ago, but they are they live on in this new generation that was sprouted with that identical genetic material. Something really nice about that.
2: It's a great thought that that the tree is so willing to regenerate itself, even against the sorts of insults that experienced with the bullwhackers dragging away the lumber with their oxen down Park Boulevard, down Redwood Road, down 14th Avenue to Antonio Peralta's Embarcadero.
0: As far as we know, California's native people never chopped down a redwood tree. Even the Spanish didn't make much of a dent. The real problems began in the lead-up to the gold rush.
2: Starting in the 1840s, we had people who would jump ships, Europeans who would jump ships. And our first major mill in the San Antonio Redwoods was the Palo Seco Mill, located on today's Palo Seco Creek, which is roughly at the bottom of Joaquin Miller Park. The Frenchmen didn't have any nails, and around 1842 they started building this mill, and they used wooden dowels, wooden pegs, to hold the thing together.
0: Nails weren't the only thing these guys were missing. This was way before chainsaws, so they used tools that were practically medieval to take down these giants.
2: The early techniques for logging involved building platforms where the loggers would stand around the trunk of the tree and hack away at it. They would use cross-cut saws, they would use a device called a jack screw to uh, pop the felled tree onto a cart to be hauled away. They used ox carts and the stories of the rugged Bullwhackers who felled the trees and were well fueled by alcohol and definitely a surly bunch are legendary.
0: If this sounds like backbreakingly hard work, it was. But these guys were beasts. They were up in the hills eating barbecued snakes. Seriously. And when they came down from the canyons, it was usually bad news.
2: Livestock rustling during the 1850s was so common a practice that the boys from the Redwoods would ride down to what's today's downtown Oakland in pursuit of rustlers. And at least on one or two occasions, they lynched and hung fellows who had been involved in livestock rustling.
0: An East Bay park ranger later described the logging camps as, quote, a suburb of hell. Keep in mind that most of these early loggers had absolutely no right to cut down the redwoods. At least for the first few years, none of those guys owned the property they were logging on. At one point, Antonio Peralta got 20 soldiers to ride up from the Presidio in San Jose to evict a bunch of lumber poachers. But after the Mexican-American War, there was no cavalry left to protect these trees that had stood since the time of the Roman Empire. Again, Amelia Sue Marshall.
2: There was a heavy layer of racism involved here. In 1848, there was war between the Californios and the incoming Yankees that was resolved with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. That opened up the floodgates for the gold rush. California was seen as a tremendous repository of timber resources, of mining resources, of fishing resources of land for settlement and the fact that there was a system of Spanish law that allowed legal title to the rancheros, most of whom had served with distinction for the King of Spain and later the government of Mexico. And they were being rewarded because they weren't being paid in money and they weren't being uh, compensated in any way that we would recognize. It was pretty much a barter economy. They were rewarded for a lifetime of service with a land grant. And the U.S. court subsequently affirmed those land grants. But the immigrants who came and disregarded the ownership rights of the uh, Latinos, the uh, Californios, because they felt that Mexico had lost the war against the United States and therefore there were no rights. The land was there for the taking by the white Americans.
0: Nobody knows exactly how many redwoods were here at the time of the gold rush but the groves might have gone all the way out to Moraga, so there were a lot. California officially became a state in 1850. After that, the ancient trees were practically all gone within a decade.
2: There was quite a boomtown atmosphere in the 1850s when all the logging was going on and the nine or 10 mills were in operation. Once the steam technology came in, that allowed them to go through lumber at a much more rapid pace than was the case uh, prior to the steam engine being introduced there on the creeks. They could saw it faster. They could send the lumber down in carts. It was much more efficient than dragging a giant redwood trunk by ox cart down rough roads.
0: Those rough roads? There are another legacy of these Wild West sawmills. The routes that were used for dragging lumber are still some of the main arteries of the Oakland Hills. Thornhill Road, Shepherd Canyon, Redwood Road, even 35th Avenue.
2: Well, they took their easiest gradient. They were using livestock to haul lumber. And where they could, they would follow a creek channel, like Park Boulevard follows the Saussel Creek Mm -hmm. channel and they would just take the easiest way to get down. It may have been a trail that indigenous people had been using for centuries, and they just expanded on those trails.
0: Remember how at the beginning of this episode, I said that it's hard to picture what the East Bay used to look like because everything is so different now? This is what I'm talking about. I used to think that the forests up in places like Redwood Regional and Joaquin Miller Parks were, you know, natural, but that's not really the case.
2: Around 1910, 1920, we had an influx of real estate developers. Their objective was to sell as many lots for houses as they possibly could. In order to make the hills more attractive, they wanted to plant trees.
0: The logging operations had left the hills looking pretty devastated. And for the real estate people who now owned this land, they just wanted their property to look nicer.
2: These guys were planting Monterey pine, Monterey cypress, acacia, and of course eucalyptus.
0: None of these species are native to the East Bay, but you know what? When I'm hiking around in the Oakland Hills on a hot sunny day, I'm glad they're there keeping it shady. Oh, and one last thing. Even though everybody thought all the old-growth redwoods had been chopped down, there's actually one left. It was discovered in 1969 by a local naturalist named Paul Covell.
2: Covell discovered what we call Old Survivor, or Grandpa Redwood, in the Leona Heights area, in the fairly wild city of Oakland, Leona Park, which encompasses an old mining area. It's directly downslope from Merritt College campus it's not easy to get to i personally uh, have not been able to climb up there i would require climbing ropes and you have to be pretty strong and agile to get to it that's how it survived it's just in an unlikely location but it's easy to see from carl Monk's school
0: old survivor is probably about 500 years old meaning that it could live for another millennium that's enough time to watch the relatively young trees up in oakland hills now develop into the next wave of massive old growth redwoods and maybe someday grizzly bears will even roam among them and condors will build nests in their towering canopies once again Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. One fun fact that I couldn't figure out how to fit into this episode is that there used to be redwood trees in Oakland that were wider than my apartment. I measured. Before I get into the shoutouts for this episode, I just want to let you know that I've got a bunch of events coming up in the next few weeks. Lots of fun stuff. So if you want the details, make sure you follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, you can find all those links at eastbayyesterday.com. On to the shoutouts. Thanks to Friends of Five Creeks, Hay hey Books, Laurel Bookstore, and everybody who contributes to the Oakland Wiki. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Please, please, please help spread the word about this show. And if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout out on social media, be sure to tag it and review it on iTunes too. That really, really helps. Music for this episode was provided by Chris Zabriskie, Lee Rosevere, and Deeb. The theme song music came from Anatech. Okay, I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay
1: Yesterday.